This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 21st, 1995. Atlantic Southeast Airlines Flight 529, a twin propeller Embraer 120 Brasilia with 29 people on board is en route from Atlanta, Georgia to Gulfport, Mississippi. While climbing through 18,000 feet, everyone on board hears a loud thud that comes from the left side of the plane and the pilots struggle to fight with the plane's controls. The torque on the left engine decreases to zero and the plane begins rolling left and pitching down, descending at 5,500 feet per minute. The passengers on the left side of the plane can see the propeller on the number one engine appears to have exploded and is a mangled mess distorting the left wing. The pilots attempt to return to Atlanta, but realize they are losing altitude too quickly to make it back. They ask for an alternate airport, and air traffic control suggests West Georgia Regional Airport. The crew attempts to keep the plane in the air, but they're unable to make it to the airport. The pilots attempt an emergency landing in a field, but the plane pitches over and begins an uncommanded dive, striking treetops before hitting the ground nose first. The aircraft skids along the ground before finally coming to a stop. What caused the left engine to malfunction? Could anything have been done to make it back to the airport? Did anybody survive this crash? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. You didn't say, I was like, how many people survived? I, I, I didn't want to give it away. Do I, again, we're always trying things maybe yeah. a, little, a little different. No, no, I, it's I good. a little mystery here. I'm hooked. <laughs> good. And I'm also Chris, and you're Gus. <laughs> I'm Gus, yeah. Uh, we're here with another episode of Black Box Down. Before we get into the meat of it, of course, as always, I want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll post images and you know videos, whatever, to try to help you have a better understanding of what was happening in the incident. Yeah, and we also have uh, merch if you want to check that out, which we appreciate if you get it and support it. It's really cool. We like all of our merch. I I, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, I do. It's all good merch. Uh, you can find that in our uh, link tree for Black Box Sound or, or just go to store.roosterteeth.com and yeah. you can find it. So just in case, I, I guess uh, bef- before we get into this incident and mm-hmm. not our, on our normal sidetracks, Chris, we're, we're recording things a little differently today. So this this episode and the next one might sound a little different. There, there, yeah. there've been it's been uh, some severe weather in the Austin area, so we cobbled together a little ad hoc recording setups to to get this episode and the next one recorded. So apologies if it if it sounds different. If it sounds better, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Well, uh, anyway, flight five two nine was an Embraer one hundred twenty Brasilia. It's a 30-passenger commuter airline powered by twin turboprop engines equipped with Hamilton standard propeller blades. So this is a two-propeller plane. Not very big, you know, holds about 30 passengers. Yeah. The aircraft was manufactured by Embraer, which is the third largest producer of civil aircraft after Boeing and Airbus. The regional airline Atlantic Southeast Aviation operated nearly 900 flights a day. And at the time, they were based in College Park, Georgia and uh, was a wholly, subsidiary, a wholly owned subsidiary of SkyWest Incorporated. So they were a regional airline that was a subsidiary and owned by another regional airline. Okay, so like... Like nesting dolls. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, this plane can't be big. No, if no. they're flying to Gulfport, Mississippi, which I lived in Mississippi. I've never even heard of Gulfport, Mississippi. You haven't heard of Gulfport? No. I assume it's by the water. I assume so, too. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of Gulfport. I used to, in another lifetime, I did uh, tech support, and one of our clients was uh, had a location in Gulfport, Mississippi. So this kind of plane, you really don't see it all that often anymore. All Embraer Brasilia, in general, were retired from service in 2003. So it, it's, it would be considered an older plane at this point, but you know this incident was back in 1995, so still newer. It was kind of a fast plane, I believe. So this specific flight was captained by... Edwin Ed Ganaway, who was 45 years old, and First Officer Matthew Matt Warmerdam, 
who was 28 years old. Ganaway was a skilled pilot with 9,876 total hours of flying experience, of which 7,374 flight hours were in the Embraer Brasilia. So quite a bit of flying and specifically quite a bit of flying in this type of plane. Mm -hmm. Warmerdam was hired by the airline in April of 1995, had logged a total of 1,193 flight hours, of which 363 hours were in the Embraer Brasilia uh, at the time of the accident. So not as experienced, but still, that's decent time. Yeah. The sole flight attendant was named Robin Fitch. She had been with the airline since February of 93. And the passengers were mostly business travelers. Six engineers, two deputy sheriffs, two Air Force personnel, a minister, a woman who was training to become a flight attendant. Actually, she was planning on becoming a flight attendant. (laughs) Sorry, you almost sound like you're setting up a joke. (laughs) All right, so two police officers, a minister. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. This is so, so just to kind of, Put it in perspective. You said it was probably not a big plane flying to Gulfport. There's a lot of business travelers and yeah. people who are going between cities down in the American South. This specific plane had been assigned to the airline's Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas hub until about a week before the accident when it was transferred to the Atlanta hub uh, because they were preparing for a check of which they needed to do on the plane at every 3,300 hours. Like a just a, a maintenance check? So So it came out of its normal flying thing because they do the checks here at Either in Atlanta, probably? Actually, the, the check was going to be in Macon, uh, Georgia. Okay. So close to Atlanta, you yeah. know. The airline had their maintenance facility in Macon. So they had reassigned the plane from Dallas to Atlanta. That way it was close to Macon. That way they could um, do their maintenance check. But of course, the accident happened before they were able to do that inspection at Macon. The airplane had uh, an operating cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder. And you know they were recovered in good condition with only minor sooting. So they were able, the investigation was actually able to use these things to aid them when they were trying to figure out what happened. So that's good. Yeah, it's always, it's always good. It's not always the case. You know, we've done plenty of these yeah. where that's not, that, that, that doesn't happen. So on the day of the accident, August 21st, 1995, the accident flight crew began a two-day trip at Macon, Georgia, and they operated the accident airplane from Macon to Atlanta, and they had a jump seat rider who was another airline, was another captain from that same uh-huh. airline, and that, they reported that flight was uneventful, and the crew appeared to be rested and... You know, everything was normal. Nothing, nothing unusual. No unusual stressors before mm-hmm. the flight. Okay. In Atlanta, the captain remained in the airplane on the ground to receive the air traffic control clearance, and the first officer deplaned and remained in the immediate area. The accident flight, number 529, was cleared for an IFR flight plan from Atlanta to Gulfport. So IFR, that means instrument flight plan. Most, most commercial airlines, like when you're on a passenger plane, most of the time it's an IFR flight. Even if it's visual rules outside, they'll usually pick up an IFR just in case they have to go through clouds. Mm-hmm. But in, on this specific day, it was kind of cloudy. That's what I was saying. It was, it was, how was the weather? Yeah. Uh, it was not bad weather, but there were clouds in the area. So that's why you know, they would yeah. pick up an IFR clearance. That way they can go through clouds. They were cleared to depart Atlanta and make their flight at flight level 240, which is 24,000 feet. Supposed to fly for about just under an hour and a half, hour 26 minutes. And, uh, and the first officer prepared, prepared the manifest. at 26 passengers, three crew members, 724 pounds of cargo, and about 2,700 pounds of fuel for departure. I'm sure you can tell based on the intro I read, wasn't a fuel problem. <laughs> they did not run out of fuel. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope if, if, if running out of fuel makes your uh, propeller explode. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not a good thing. So the flight taxied from the ramp area at 12.10, and they were airborne at 12.23 p.m. Mm-hmm. At 12.36, the first officer reported to the West Departure Sector of Atlanta that they were climbing past 13,000 feet, and at about 12.42, following several intermediate climb clearances, the controller issued a clearance to climb and maintain flight level 240, 
which the flight crew acknowledged. And like we said, you know, that was supposed to be their cruising altitude. The flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder indicated that at 12.43 and 25 seconds, while climbing through 18,100 feet at 160 knots, several thuds could be heard from the cockpit and the torque on the left engine decreased to zero. The airplane then rolled left and pitched down and subsequently started to descend. Immediately thereafter, the flight data recorder shows numerous flight control inputs consistent with an attempt to counteract the flight path deviations. However, the airplane attitude decreased to about 9 degrees nose low, and the airplane began a descent rate that progressed to about 5,500 feet per minute. So this is probably sounding dumb, and I'm looking up right now. Torque, measure of the force that can cause an object to rotate about an axis. So, so when the torque goes to zero, that essentially means the propeller's not spinning. Okay. So that, that's like, that's the alert that they're getting in the cockpit. You know, they have gauges that can measure the torque and they see the torque on their left engine is zero. So essentially that would, not knowing anything else, that would tell them their left engine's not working. That they can't do anything with that. Either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for whatever reason, I've, you know, I've never, I don't know. I don't know in general what would cause that, but I would assume it would be things like the engine dies, maybe it flames out, propeller stops spinning. Just something's wrong with the left side, and it's not producing thrust for them. Okay, I was just clear. I don't think we'd refer often of things in terms of torque. Yeah, so that's why I was. Yeah, yeah. So just think of it as no power, and then and like we established here, that that kind of coincides with what we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. The airplane's rolling left because left engine yeah. not working, right engine's working. Airplane pitches down and starts to descend. And how capable are these planes of flying with just one engine? Totally fine. Any kind of plane, if you designed to, if it's designed to carry passengers and you get on it, should be able to fly with just one engine. Okay, so in theory, they should be fine. Yes. Let me read one more sentence and then I'll come back to that. And then you'd be like, "But <laughs> <laughs> at this point, you know, when all this is going on, the captain said, "I can't hold this thing." Then help me hold it. At twelve forty-four and twenty-six seconds, the first officer declared an emergency with Atlanta Center and stated, "We've had an engine failure." Atlanta Center cleared them direct back to the Atlanta airport. So, going back to the question you asked. Any plane should be able to fly with one engine. I'm only saying this now because I already kind of spoiled it in the intro. Like I said, in the very beginning, the passengers could see that the left engine had kind of exploded mm-hmm. and it was warping the wing. So the it wasn't stable. So that's, that's... Correct. That's So that's making things worse. So normally, if the engine just died and was just sitting there, that's fine. But when it... Blows off part of the plane. (laughs) Right. When it starts distorting the wing, then you're not getting as much lift as you should. Instead of kind of being neutral in the process, it's robbing the plane of lift. So it's going to make that want, that desire of the plane to roll to the left even worse than normal. And it's going to cause them to not be able to maintain their altitude, which is why they start this kind of fast descent that's going on here. There's there's another little twist to it, but I'm not going to get to that yet. We'll get to that in a little bit. That's just a tease. That's a little tease. (laughs) According to data from the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, airspeed and descent rate changes continued and were accompanied by abrupt excursions in vertical and lateral acceleration values. And that just means their descent rate and their velocities were not stable in any axis. Mm. Okay. They're just... They're just kind of like... Wobbly? Yeah, wo- wobbly. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Wobbling around in the air. At 12.45 and 46 seconds, the cockpit voice recorder revealed that the first officer informed the flight attendant They had an engine failure, and he had declared an emergency, and they were going back to Atlanta. He told her to brief the passengers. And this is the little thing I teased about earlier. The passengers and the flight attendant could all see out the window that the engine, they could see the extent of the damage to the engine, Mm -hmm. but the pilots didn't know the extent of the damage to the engine. Mm -hmm. They just heard a thump, thump, and and then no torque. 
and then no torque. So as far as they know, it's just an engine failure. They don't realize that the engine has kind of come loose <gasps> as long as the propeller and is distorting that left wing and robbing them of their lift. Like come loose is in like dangling? Like Yeah, like, it's not like hanging loose. It's kind of turned itself. Since we, if you think about the propeller, it's got that angular velocity to it. When it failed, it kind of twisted a bit. Oh, so it's like put... It kind of like turned itself into the wing a bit. Gotcha. So now it's just really disrupting the airflow right. in a way. So it's not like, it's not as if the engine exploded and there's a hole. It's there. It's just kind of shifted around. Shifted around in a way that's, that's like stopping airflow. Okay. Exactly. So that's why, that, that's an extra complication. And the pilots don't know that. Uh, and that this, this is the only time that the pilots and the flight attendant talk. And the flight attendant does not tell the pilots what they the passengers see? have seen. Right. Because the flight attendant assumes the pilots they know, know what's going on. But they can't. Mm. But they haven't seen mm. it. At 1246 and 13 seconds, the first officer stated, we're going to need to keep descending. We need an airport quick. Roll the trucks and everything for us. So he's talking to the air traffic control, basically telling them they're going to keep descending and get emergency trucks out there. And, and how much, I mean, probably not a ton because they're just trying to land. But I mean, if the flight attendant had told them, hey, this is the state of the outside, would that have changed? I mean, it seems like they're they're not going all the way back to land anyway. They're just like trying to, at this point, they're like, we, we got to land. Right. Well, at first they had talked about going to Atlanta and uh -huh. that was the initial plan. And then, you know, they get, and not too much time ha passes, just a couple minutes. And then they decide on West Georgia instead. What could have done? Uh, it's hard to say. I don't know really anything that could have been done differently. Maybe they could have expedited and been a little more direct to West Georgia. Mm. But they were already pretty direct. I, it, it's it's like yeah, that's armchair just, quarterbacking. I don't yeah. know. Maybe if they knew, they could have handled things a little differently, but it's hard to say. Yeah. The controller gave the crew heading information to West Georgia Regional Airport, and the flight crew applied various combinations of flight control inputs and power on the right engine, partially stabilizing the airplane descent rate to between 1,000 and 2,000 feet per minute, and the airspeed to between 153 and 175 knots. The Atlanta Center controller lost the flight's transponder code from radar when the airplane descended through 4,500 feet. Because, you know, there's a, a vertical component to it. It's, it's harder to read it because they're further away and they're also getting low. And is that just because they, like, have it set to the wrong, I don't know, in terms of, like, a radio, right? You're, like, on the wrong channel? No, it's more that just they're, they're, they're further... Then normally this controller would not be talking to a plane that far out, mm -hmm. and they've gotten low. It's almost like it's because of the, if you think about it, it's like the, almost the curvature of the Earth. The earth, okay. Right? It yeah. starts blocking, and you can't really get a signal. You need to have a certain amount of altitude in order for it to be picked yeah. up. Okay, and even more more things like interfering, like exactly a, a big building or trees and or, a hill or, the signal or a mountain yeah. might be too weak or yeah. for whatever reason. That's why normally you need a little more altitude or need to talk to someone else, but at around the same time, at 12.50, that air traffic controller instructed the crew to contact Atlanta Approach Control, which is a different controller. And this is the controller who would normally handle the approaches out at that West Georgia Regional Airport. Okay. So the crew contacts that new controller and requested the localizer frequency and vectors for West Georgia Regional Airport. So they're requesting everything to try to get lined up for an instrument approach, a non-precision approach into that airport. And the controller tells them the information they're asking for and the flight crew acknowledges and they requested visual they requested vectors for a visual approach so even though they're getting the instrument approach information mm -hmm. loaded up they're requesting 
a visual approach, which can be faster. Okay. So it's like maybe, you know, for a, an instrument approach, you might have to go out a little further, get everything set up, and then, you know, come in for the landing. But when a visual approach means you can see the airport, well, you, you would do a visual approach when you can see the airport and you kind of go straight in for it. And so he's, he's getting both just in case. Right. So they're getting everything set up for the instrument approach, and then they're asking for vectors so they can come in for a visual approach. I think at this point, there's still clouds obscuring them, mm. but they know that they're going to dip down through the clouds and then they'll be able to see the airport. And they're like, just in case, well, we have the instrument yeah. stuff, but we're going we're gonna to try to vector in and land on a visual. The controller verified the altitude of their plane and that the plane was in visual flight rules, VFR, because you need visual flight rules to be able to do a visual approach. And said, fly heading 040, airports at your about 10 o'clock, six miles. At 12.51 and 47 seconds, the pilots acknowledged 040 ASC 529. This transmission was the last one received by the approach controller from the accident flight. At 12.51 and 30 seconds, the airspeed steadily decreased from 168 knots to about 120 knots. Flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder information indicated that the landing gear and flaps remained retracted, which you would think they would, that's the, probably the right thing to do, because once you drop landing gear and flaps, that's more drag. Mm-hmm. It's going to slow you down, and it's going to reduce, it's going to make you descend faster. And they're trying to stretch out their, their flight path to make it to the airport. Okay. Cockpit voice recorder sounds indicated the first ground impact occurred at about 12.52 and 45 seconds. So to answer your earlier question, Chris, you asked, you know, we kind of left it hanging as to whether or not there were survivors mm-hmm. on, uh, on this flight. And uh, there were a total of, initially there were a total of 29 people on the plane, 26 passengers, three crew members. In the crash itself, only one person initially died. <gasps> Ooh. That's, I mean, I, I mean, that's, uh, I say, ooh, someone died, but also that's, that's good. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, unfortunately, it was the captain uh, of the plane. Uh, mm. He uh, suffered injuries during the, the crash. However, post-crash, more people died once the plane was on the ground. All told, there were, there's an asterisk on this one. Uh-huh. All told, depending on how you count it, and I'll get into that in a bit, there were either nine or ten fatalities total on this plane. Hmm. Out, so, of the, out of the 29 uh, people who were on it. Roughly a third. Yeah. And we'll get into kind of the specifics of that here in, in just a bit. In post-crash interviews, survivors indicated that during the climb out, they heard a loud sound and felt the airplane shudder. They also indicated that two or three blades from the left propeller were wedged against the front of the wing. Like we talked about, it's not like the engine just drooped down. It kind of turned mm. and those propellers got wedged uh, into the wing itself. Oh. The flight attendant said that she looked out the left side of the aircraft and observed a mangled piece of machinery where the propeller and the front part of the cowling was. Other passengers observed the propeller displaced outboard from its original position on the engine. The flight attendant stated that after the first officer notified her of the flight's emergency return to Atlanta, she prepared the cabin for an emergency landing and evacuation. She stated she had no further dialogue with the flight crew. Investigators found the left engine propeller assembly early in the ground debris path. The propeller hub contained three complete blades and about one foot of the inboard end of the fourth blade was protruding from the hub. The remainder of the fourth blade was not at the accident site. Does that tell you anything? Oh, so it fell off? It, it probably, Somewhere, whenever, that was one of the thud, thud booms? That's most likely what that noise was, and that's what caused the, the whole assembly to shift. To and, shift and, yeah, yeah end, end up impacting the wing. So it fell off initially whenever the problem first started. The main wreckage area consisted of the cockpit, fuselage, right wing and engine, and the empennage, which is like the tail section. Portions of two of the right engine's propeller blades remained attached to the propeller hub and engine. 
the remaining two blades of the right engine propeller assembly were located nearby. See, the right engine, which was working, mm-hmm. all of the blades yeah, and everything, yeah, yeah. it's there. Like, the okay. left engine, it's like, oh, <laughs> huh. there's a part missing that's not anywhere around here. Hmm, that's not right. Uh, an area of the grass leading up to and surrounding the main wreckage was burned out to a radius of about 30 feet. You know, this was a, a pretty rural area where it went down, and it was... This this sounds more dramatic than it really was, uh-huh. but uh, essentially it's, it was in someone's backyard. But it's not like a suburban backyard. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, you know, like someone has like a lot of land, and um, you know the, this this couple saw the plane crash you know, on their property, and you know they call for rescue services. Like, hey, a plane just crashed in our backyard, uh, and they went out there to try to help people. That's nice of them. Yeah, the airplane came to rest at the northwest end of an 850 foot wreckage trail that was aligned on a heading of about 330 degrees magnetic. So they were heading pretty north. Numerous trees were sheared off prior to ground contact, consistent with a descent angle of about 20 degrees and an increasing left wing down attitude of 15 to 40 degrees. So Dang. that's kind of what I was saying yeah. earlier. Like most likely they could no longer counteract that asymmetric lift and the left wing went down. And they didn't have altitude to, to, to trade for speed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Impact with the trees extended for about 360 feet. And following the last tree impact, a debris path continued for 490 feet through an open field on a slightly upsloping terrain for the main wreckage. They never put their landing gear down? No. Not that it would have mattered I mean, the way they hit. So, just... Yeah, sometimes it can help. I think we've talked about some incidents before where the plane, you know, the gear is down and the gear absorbs a mm. lot of the impact force. Mm. You know, when the plane comes down belly down. In this case, they were left wing down. The, yeah. I don't know that the gear would, would have really absorbed much more. Prominent ground scars were observed at the beginning of the debris field about 40 feet from the last tree impact that were consistent with the dimensional measurements of the left wing to the fuselage. The first scars contained several pieces of the left wing. Ground scars were consistent with the separation of the left wing at its root. Debris from the airplane was scattered along the wreckage path in the field. The left engine's propeller and reduction gearbox assembly were located about 160 feet past the tree line. The Safety Board's Airplane Performance Group used its Windfall computer program to calculate the trajectory of the missing blade piece. This is the thing we Mm. were talking about. The group devised a search area and alerted the local residents and authorities about the missing piece. Three weeks after the accident, the outboard piece of the blade was discovered by a farmer. It had been well hidden in some tall grass about 100 yards off the primary search area. That's always the really impressive part to me. When like something falls off of a plane and they kind of know where to look and then they find it. Yeah. I mean, 100 yards isn't that far from... I don't know how big their uh, search area was. Yeah, but 100 yards, that's that's close. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we didn't find it in this area. Let's just expand the search. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, it was a farmer who found it, so you yeah. let the people in the area know so they can be alert and look for it too. How big was this part? So I found a European website that uh-huh. lists the dimensions of this specific type of propeller. It's a Hamilton Standard 14RF-19. Uh-huh. And the propeller blades are listed as being 3.35 meters, which are, I mean, this would be actually the entire propeller assembly. So that's about 11 feet across. Uh-huh. Uh, so let's say, you know, it goes two sides, so it's divided in half. This is very yeah, rough yeah. math. Five and a half feet, they had a foot left. So this is probably about a four-foot section of propeller okay. that they found. Roughly, if this, <laughs> if this dimension is correct, and if I'm doing my math correctly, that would be my best guess. So if that's not exact, that at least gives you an idea roughly of how big yeah. the, the Which, part would probably be. So it's, it's big, but not like, you're ne- yeah, not like so big that you're like, how, you're going to obviously see it. Right. Especially it was, in tall grass. Right. Like. If it was a kid, four foot tall kid playing hide and seek in the grass, you'd have trouble <laughs> finding him. <laughs> 
Based on the dispatch records, investigators estimated that about 350 gallons of fuel were on board at the time of the accident. Per normal operating practice, the fuel would have been equally distributed between the left and right side tanks. You know, the fuel is normally stored like in the wings. That's where the tanks are. Mm -hmm. The two tanks in the left wing separated early during the impact sequence, and there was evidence of fuel spilled on the vegetation along the wreckage path. The inboard tank in the right wing was found burned at the accident site, but the outboard tank was intact. Passengers did not observe fire until after the airplane came to a complete stop. They said there was a period of about one minute before the outbreak of fire. So they crashed, uh-huh. everything stopped, and there was about a minute, and then the fire started. Oh. The passengers described black smoke and flame consistent with what would be expected of a fuel-fed fire. Passengers reported that the fire was immediately preceded by cracking sounds and sparks from wires oh. and cables, and that the fire started in small patches and spread quickly, fully engulfing the area aft of the cockpit entrance door. Some passengers related they found portions of their clothing saturated with fuel. Oh, my God. And one passenger saw a couple of people on fire. Oh, no. Remember, we talked about how only the captain died in the actual crash. The other people who passed away were because of the post-crash fire. Oh. The flight attendant and several passengers said they had to run through flames to escape from the cabin wreckage. Oh, and if you're covered in fuel. Right. That's, that's how these other people died in this crash, either from smoke inhalation or because Fuel had been spilled everywhere, and then a fire started, and then they had to run through flames to get out of oh the wreckage. God, that would be, that's the worst, is whenever you survive, a, like, some, you survive something, and then you end up dying because of, of like, on the escape. Or you th- you right. know, it's like you think you're fine. Yeah. What was even worse is that some people, you know, ran through the fire to get mm-hmm. out of the wreckage, you know, caught... You know, some parts of their clothing caught fire, and then, you know, they tried to stop, drop, and roll. But, oh, no. But there was fuel on the ground. Oh, no. Yeah, it was an awful situation all around. Oh, my God. That's the worst. Uh, and like I said, the captain died as a result of the crash. The first officer survived. However, he was trapped in the cockpit. There was no way for him to get out. Oh. And he, so he had a fire axe in the cockpit with him. But his, you know, it's small in there, so he didn't really have a lot of space to swing it. And his right shoulder was dislocated. So he was trying to use his fire axe to... Like hit the window? Like hit the window and yeah. get out. Uh, but he couldn't get, you know, a lot of force behind it. So he managed to make a little hole. And then he called a, a passenger over who had survived. And he handed the axe through the window to the passenger oh. who was outside. And, you know, started using the axe to try to, you know, create a bigger hole yeah. in the window for the first officer to escape. And then what made matters even worse was that... There was a canister of emergency oxygen in the cockpit, <gasps> which started leaking, which started fueling the fire even faster uh, in the cockpit. Oh, my God. Uh, and then as the passenger was using the axe to try to smash open the window, uh, like the handle flew off, or not the handle, the um, the head flew off of the axe. Oh, And the passenger had to run and go find it and put okay. the axe back together. And, At least it didn't like fly off and hit someone. No, no. Uh, but then eventually the rescue personnel show up and, um, you know, are able to pull the first officer out. He was he was severely injured, but the, the first officer did survive. So all told, the captain was the only one who suffered fatal injuries from the impact. And seven passengers died as a result of the crash and subsequent fire, uh, including three who died within 30 days of the crash. A ninth victim died four months after the crash from severe burn injuries. None of the passengers or crew escaped uninjured. So everyone got hurt. Got hurt at some point. A tenth passenger died eight weeks after the crash from a heart attack and is sometimes listed as a fatality related to this crash. That's why I said either nine or ten people are listed as fatalities because of this. He, he had a heart attack. Well, uh, how old was he? Or like what was the condition? It was, it, it was so? a woman. She was, she was uh, a bit older. 
I don't remember her exact age, but some people say the stress of this accident and everything in, in the fall, yeah, yeah, just kind of could have triggered this heart attack to occur. So that's why she's sometimes listed as a tenth victim, sometimes not. Yeah. So you know, we talked about everything that's happened. You know, it was very clear. You know, both from from <laughs> from what the passengers saw and from what the investigators found at the site that the propeller broke. Mm-hmm. The engine, you know, as a result, uh, you know, was not balanced, so it twisted, got stuck in the wing, plane crashed, spilled fuel, there's a fire. Yeah. You know, so all of that's very clear. So then the big question is, why did that piece of the propeller snap? You know, why yeah. did that bit of propeller break? So we're going to kind of read through a bunch of things here, and we're going to get specifically into, into that. I'm curious about that maintenance that they were supposed to do. <sighs> yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like walking your dog in public without securing them on a leash. Most of the time, probably okay. But what if one day your dog runs away or gets dog-napped? It's better to be careful, especially when it's as simple as using ExpressVPN. When you're out and about at a restaurant, hotel, airport, any place where you'd connect to an unencrypted network, scary truth is your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, Luckily, ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so they can't do that. It would actually take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years just to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. I love ExpressVPN. Works on all my devices, my laptop, my phone, tablet, anything I put online, I can connect it. So I feel good no matter where I go or what I connect with. Uh, It's really simple to use. All I do, open up the app, click one button to get protected. Couldn't be any easier. One button. Right now, you can get extra three months of ExpressVPN free at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown, expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. One of my New Year's resolutions was to cook more at home, but sometimes it can seem daunting to make sure I have all the right ingredients and the correct portions and sizes. Uh, That's why I love Green Chef. When you use Green Chef, everything is pre-portioned and fresh. You're even reducing your food waste by up to 38% versus grocery shopping. They also just expanded their menu to include more than 30 recipes to choose from weekly, including keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, and gluten-free options. Personally, I pick up the vegetarian options. I think it's great. I can get everything. I don't have to worry about if it's something I I, I can eat or not. It's all pre-selected for me, super fast to make. And uh, when it's done, I I get a little project. When it's done, I get to eat it, and it's absolutely delicious. Uh, I'm always excited about every recipe that they include for me. Sometimes it's things that... And maybe I don't normally eat, and it can help introduce me to new things and things that kind of break the routine. Uh, in case you didn't know, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. With a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there really is something for everyone. Plus, as an added bonus, Green Chef is the only meal kit that offsets 100% of their carbon footprint, as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. In 2023, help yourself to delicious, convenient recipes that support your healthy lifestyle and taste good too. Go to greenchef.com slash blackboxdown60 use code BLACKBOXDOWN60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's G-R-E-E-N-C-H-E-F dot com slash BLACKBOXDOWN60 with code BLACKBOXDOWN60 for 60% off and free shipping. So, of course, you know, there's the usual carve-out. In, in an incident like this, there's a lot of very typical uh, mm-hmm. verbiage that the flight crew was trained, they were certified, they were qualified, they were in good health. Basically, it's all the stuff that absolves the crew of fault. Mm-hmm. It also says that the airline maintained the airplane in accordance with the applicable Federal Aviation Regulations and Company Operations specific Specifications. So I know you were kind of, that kind of starts to play into the check you were asking about. After the propeller blade separation, the combination of resulting loss of left engine thrust, increased drag from a deformed engine nacelle, and the three blades retained in the propeller hub, 
added frontal drag from external sheet metal damage, degraded airplane performance, preventing the flight crew from arresting the airplane's descent or making rapid changes in its direction of flight, making a forced landing necessary. So just kind of the technical summary of the engine blew up, got twisted, and uh, made them descend and they couldn't yeah. control their direction and, very and well. And affirming that that they weren't able to fly the plane. Correct. It's not a, a, a lack of, of handling of the situation for Cor- the crew. Correct. One of the four blades from the left engine propeller separated in flight because of fatigue crack that originated from multiple corrosion pits in the taper bore surface of the blade spar propagated toward the outside of the blade around both sides of the taper bore then reached critical size. Gus, it's always those fatigue cracks. It is. It's fatigue cracks. They're scary. So I learned, I learned a lot about <laughs> propeller blades uh, getting ready for this episode, Chris. And it turns out, and I, I didn't talk about this because this is kind of the twist that's coming here. This was a recurring problem with these propeller blades. Oh. There had been a couple of other incidents and crashes where these blades had been failing and having fatigue cracks. So there had been maintenance as a result, as a result of this. You uh-huh. know, the investigation boards knew this was an ongoing issue. So all of these propellers had been taken out, out of service, inspected. Then, you know, if they were deemed to be okay, they were put back into service. Or if they needed repair, they were repaired and then put back into service. This specific propeller uh-huh. had been inspected and had been given a clean bill of health and had been returned to service. When? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. So I'm just, I'm just kind of okay. setting all of that up. So we're go, that, that kind of helps establish these next few points I'm going to read through. So I'm just kind of setting that right now. Because of the severely degraded aircraft performance following the propeller blade separation, the flight crew's actions were reasonable and appropriate during their attempts to control and maneuver the airplane throughout the accident sequence and they were not a factor in this accident. So again, absolving the crew, they did everything that they were expected to do. Hamilton Standards, and Hamilton Standard was the manufacturer of the propeller. Okay. Hamilton Standards' engineering decision to use the PS960A blending repair to remove ultrasonic indications caused by a short peen taper bore surface was technically reasonable. Some of these are, are, are kind of technical. I'm going to read through a couple more, and then we're going to go back and explain them. The manner in which the unapproved extension of the PS960A was documented and communicated within Hamilton Standard and the lack of training on the extension created confusion and led to misapplication of the blending repair to the unshot-peened blades with unexplained ultrasonic indications allowing the accident blade to be placed back into service with an existing crack. So, okay, but this is... uh, There's a a couple more, but I'm going to interject now because it's getting overwhelming. (laughs) These propellers can be made out of... Well, this propeller was made out of wood. I'll just say that. Wood? Yeah. Because it's light and strong. Huh. And, and they, they have like a coating on them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, that makes them... That, that black coating that you see on them that kind of holds them together and makes them stronger. And they're also hollow in the middle. But you didn't know that. I didn't know I that. I didn't know that. And, you know, again, in order to make them... Light. And, lighter. Mm-hmm. And what happens is there's like a, a bore drilled through the center of these propellers to kind of pull the core out and make it lighter, and then they stick a weight in there uh-huh. to kind of help it spin, and then they stop the weight with, <laughs> with a piece of cork that they soak in chlorine. Chris, I, uh-huh. I know you probably have a puzzled look on your face. That's, that's just the way that it works okay. normally. So when they had to inspect these propellers to see if they were okay to go back into service, you know, a technician goes, they pull the cork and the weight out. They do like ultrasonic testing, and if they determined it was okay, 
the technician was told to then polish the inside of that core, that, that's that, the inside of that hollow area, and then stick the weight and the cork back in there to hold it. Well, it turns out that even though this propeller inspected and said that it was okay, there were some very small fatigue cracks. And oh. then when the technician repolished the inside, it kind of covered up and hid the fatigue cracks. So they were even, they were even harder to detect. Oh. Oh, and then wait. So how do they know that there were fatigue cracks then? Without post crash, well, because they, they, they went back and looked, them. right? They so could, they see could be the like, inside. oh, here's the crack. Oh, and here's where it was polished over. Right. But now that it's broken open, you can see it. Mm. When it's not broken open, you can't tell, or you couldn't tell. And then so he polished it, and then when he stuck that, or when they stuck, I don't want to sound like I'm blaming that technician. He was doing what he was supposed, what he was told to do. That piece of cork that was soaked in chlorine, the chlorine got in there and exacerbated the cracks and made them worse. <sighs> so that's kind of the short of it. And, then, and there's, there's a lot. That's uh, all of this I'm talking about, uh-huh. you know, shot peen taper bore surfaces yeah, and yeah, yeah. unshot peen blades. That's kind of what all of this is. I'm kind of trying to explain no, it. No, you're doing a good job. It. You're distilling it down. If you told me just like, you know, they, they pulled the cork off the plane blade <laughs> and, you know, wiggle it around and checked for it's like what <laughs> yeah it sounds made up the sandy marks left by the blending repair did not contribute to the initiation of the fatigue crack in the accident blade remember i said mm-hmm. you had to polish it that's that so sandy marks did not make it worse the failure to restore the taper bore surface to the original surface finish as required by ps960a was a factor that caused a reduction of the ultrasonic indication that allowed the blade to pass the final ultrasonic inspection and be returned to service so like i said when they didn't restore the taper bore surface to the original finish, that kind of hit it because that's he polished it. It wasn't the original finish anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's so, but, that, that's why it kind of it passed. It was kind of like inadvertently, it, I, yeah, it, yeah, it kind of hit it. It kind of like covered over the surface of those cracks. I thought so. So the the way they were doing that is they pull out the cork and the weight, and then they po- polish it. They polish it first, yeah, and then look. That's weird. It is. It's not. And, and in fact, <laughs> that's the next point on here. The borescope inspection procedure developed and used by Hamilton Standard in June of 1994 to inspect return blades that had re- rejectable ultrasonic indications for evidence of cracks, pits, and corrosion was inadequate and ineffective. So mm. this was not a good procedure for them to be following to do this. Yeah. That's, that's weird that they would polish it first. I'm with you, Chris. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. The introductory technical training to prepare the new inexperienced workforce at Hamilton Standards Rock Hill Customer Service Center might have been adequate, but the training initially given to technicians who inspected blades that were returned to Rock Hill as a result of on-wing ultrasonic inspections, including the accident blade, was inadequate to ensure proficiency in the detection of taper bore corrosion or associated cracks. So they're kind of saying it's a, a training issue with the technicians who were looking at these propellers. They were trained the wrong way. To they look were at trained... To look for them incorrectly. Correct. Not so the actual way that they were supposed to do it would have taken care of it. Well, it's not that there was a way they were supposed to do it It, because it was this is the propeller blade manufacturer. Remember, this is kind of an unforeseen problem. So they invented this, or I shouldn't say they invented, they developed this process to look for the problem, but the process itself was bad. Yeah. So whoever developed it is, and yeah. Correct. It's their fault. I, I have a question too. These cracks these that are coming about, are they due to like age and time? Or is it some of the blades just have a, when they were built, had a tendency to develop these flaws. So if you, if you were to check them and check them correctly, right? 
would they then be fine? Was it like a, you know what I mean? Was it a one-time thing? They checked them all to see, That's or a, would, would they have to continue to do it every, you know? Th- this was abnormal. I don't know what the underlying cause that resulted in these numerous failures was, but this was not something that was expected. This was not, that's why they kind of had to invent this process to inspect the the propellers. And this was not within the normal expectations that they would have. Mm. And I want to clarify something I said earlier. So these propellers were made of wood. Not all propellers. I, I think earlier I said propellers are made of wood. I didn't yeah, give yeah. an asterisk. Oh, I assume. Yeah, not sometimes all they're that. made of aluminum or composites. But especially at this time and this specific propellers we're talking about, these are wood. I don't want anyone thinking all propellers yeah. all the time are made of wood. There can be a number of, of, of materials. If Hamilton Standard had recommended and the FAA had required repetitive ultrasonic inspections for all propellers after shortcomings were recognized and improvements were made in the inspection process, the crack in the accident blade would most likely have been detected. There is a potential for corrosion to develop in taper bores of the affected Hamilton Standard propeller blades. We kind of know that. The cloud ceiling precluded the flight crew from being able to see the ground and thus to make a more successful forced landing. Remember, we talked about Mm. how there were uh, clouds and that's just kind of saying that maybe if it had been a clear day, they they could have found mm, a better spot to 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 put the plane down. Where it's like, oh, maybe without trees. Right. Like a flat, yeah. But again, that's... Hearsay. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's beyond their control. And and that's also speculation. How long had passed since this propeller had been inspected? So this blade that failed Uh testing had undergone this ultrasonic testing May 19th, 1994. And then... You know, all this was done, and it was sent back to the airline, and it was fitted onto the aircraft September 30th, 1994. So, so almost a year had almost passed a year. Between, mm. between that. Although the Atlanta approach controller did not issue the AWOS frequency, that's the weather, so they could, the pilots can listen to the weather. They did not issue the AWOS frequency or provide weather information. The controller performed higher priority tasks, and because the flight had to land at the nearest airport, regardless of the weather, the failure to provide the West Georgia weather information of the flight crew was not a factor in this accident. Sorry, going back to this polishing. Yeah. I assume that they could tell because the crack, the cracks were polished away that they definitely had been present before the inspection, yes, right? I think they can see, you know, again, once the propellers cracked open, you can see the extent of it. Versus like, yeah, and even the fact that the uh, the... What did you say? Alcohol or what is chlorine. it? Chlorine. They put on it mm-hmm. that made it worse. So, so as opposed to the cracks developing in that year. Exactly. Okay. It's it, it's it's not a great analogy, but the analogy I would give you is this: It's like if you have a house and you see a couple of termites, and you're like, "Oh no, I know there's termites. I don't know what the damage looks like inside the walls. Mm. If we want to know truly the extent of the damage, we need to open up the walls and look." It's, a, it's kind of the same thing where it's like you see a crack on the outside and you don't know really what the extent is, except you can't, maybe you can detect termites with ultrasonic testing. I don't know. But uh, that's, so that's kind of how they have to look at it. They can't crack open the yeah. propeller. They can't break the propeller to determine if, you know, what's going on with it. So they use this ultrasonic testing to look. And in this case, the polishing of it kind of hid the, the damage. So we didn't get into this part. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this part here and then we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in just a bit. If Atlanta Center had placed a call for emergency services as soon as the pilots requested, which was 10 minutes before the accident, 
Personnel would have responded sooner and the rescue efforts might have been more timely and therefore more effective. They waited to call? Yeah, the air traffic control didn't alert any of the emergency services. Remember For that? how long? Ten minutes. Remember, Ten, wait. Well, t- remember that couple I told you who called emergency That's, services? That's, they're the ones who did. They're the one that emergency services had no idea about this. Until, what? Until after the crash and that couple calls for them. So What? Yeah, if they had been alerted sooner by air traffic control, this might have ended up differently. There might have been... People, yeah. yeah, emergency services waiting at the airport or along the way, knowing that this plane yeah, could yeah. come down and have been you, there. They were only four miles away. We right. already put the fire out, made it easier for those people to escape. These people could, the, again, it's hard to say. If they had been alerted, it's possible these people may have survived. But they didn't have any. They didn't. Oh my god, that's that right. is that's bad. That's yeah. That's that's really bad. I think that's maybe the worst part of it, of all of it this. It feels well, like I mean, not counting, of course, the. What the caused incident the itself, yeah. but like, it seems like it was caused by like, not inherent negligence, just a bad procedure, right? Right. A bad develop. They they fixed the problem wrong, in, in that they didn't fix it. Right. But that there's man. Yeah, that's that's terrible. This accident illustrates that critical information regarding time available to prepare the aircraft for an emergency landing or impact is not being considered and communicated among flight and cabin crew members. Like, like we said, that one time is the only time that the pilots talked with the flight attendant and she didn't know that they were about to touch down. Like she looked out the window and saw treetops. Oh. And was like, oh, we're about to, oh, like, she, like we're, they, about, we're about to crash right now. So she had to like run to her seat, mm. you know, strap in and yell at everyone to get in their brace position. She'd already been preparing the cabin. But didn't realize. But didn't like, know how soon they were going to be yeah. landing. Mm. And again, the clouds may have obscured their or her view or anyone's view. I think. I think actually, in fact, they didn't tell. They they only told her they were going back to Atlanta. They didn't tell her that they were mm. diverting somewhere else. So she didn't. Re- she really had no uh, yeah. idea. Yeah. And and I mean because they kind of well descended faster than they meant mm-hmm. to. They were probably trying to deal with that. And yeah, they didn't communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last one on here is there should be standards governing the design of crash axes required to be carried aboard passenger carrying aircraft. They just kind of want to make those crash axes. Uh, oh, crash axes. Right. Remember I said that the first officer was trying to use the axe and couldn't. And it fell apart. It. Yeah. And then he gave it to the passenger and it fell apart. So they just want to make that, those crash axes better. Hey, that's good. Makes total sense. That, that's a good little, a good little uh, tidbit. But yeah. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this accident was the in-flight fatigue fracture and separation of a propeller blade resulting in distortion of the left engine nacelle causing excessive drag, loss of wing lift, and reduced directional control of the airplane. The fracture was caused by a fatigue crack from multiple corrosion pits that were not discovered by Hamilton Standard because of inadequate and ineffective corporate inspection and repair techniques, training, documentation, and communications. Contributing to the accident was Hamilton Standard and the FAA's failure to require recurrent on-wing ultrasonic inspections for the affected propellers. And contributing to the severity of the accident was the overcast cloud ceiling at the accident site. Yeah, but that's uh, that's it. There was another incident that was very similar to this. I don't think uh-huh. we'll ever do an episode about it. But if you know our listeners are curious, <laughs> it's also Atlantic Southeast. It's Atlantic Southeast Airlines Flight 2311. It's the same kind of plane and had essentially the same issue where there was a there was a the propeller broke because mm-hmm. of these uh, fatigue cracks. So if you're curious to read more about or look into more about another incident that's almost 
well, not almost identical. That's very similar to this one. You can look up Atlantic Southeast Airlines Flight 2311. That's the one that happened four years before this incident that, that kind of kicked off the, mm. hey, there's something wrong with these propellers. We need to look into them. So so did, after this, did they swap out all the propellers or did they change their process for inspecting them or what? They, yeah, they updated the the inspection process and made it more rigorous in order to uh, try to catch these. And, it, and to their credit, the new inspection process worked and this never okay. happened again. Okay. They learned. I mean, that's, and that's the ultimate thing you want to hear from our episodes. And hopefully that's the thing we drive home is that despite the awful tragedy and the terrible circumstances, things are learned and things get safer because of all of these accidents. Yeah. Fix the propeller inspection method, better access. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I want to know what, what happened to the air traffic control who didn't alert. Did they get like... I don't think there was any... Criminal charges against, like... No, I don't think there was any uh, repercussions against them. As far as I know, that was not mentioned in the report. Uh And in reading up on this crash, I did not find anything about that. It's possible, but I just didn't come across anything addressing that. Okay. Because, yeah, that's that's to me, is almost like the worst part, I guess. I mean, the plane crashing, obviously, but just that the negligence of that. Yeah. It's uh, terrible. But yeah, that's it for Atlantic Southeast Airlines Flight 529. I, I learned a lot about propellers <laughs> in, uh, yeah. looking into this, uh, into this um, episode. I'll, try, I'll see if I can find some diagrams on social media of what a cutaway wood propeller looks like with that borehole and the weight and the cork and all of that. I'll see if I can find some good ones and post them on social media for this episode. I'd be curious, too, if it's not too um, graphic to see what the ground looked like the way it hit. You know, like, because you talked about it, like, burning and then hitting trees. Yeah, I, I, I've i seen, in looking into this, I saw photos of the fuselage itself. I don't know if I saw any wide photos of the area surrounding it. I'll see if I can dig something up. And if I can, I'll, I'll post that as well. But yeah, that's it for this episode. We'll be back next week uh, with another episode. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Please share this podcast with your friends. And if you're looking for something else to listen to, you should listen to Tales from Stinky Dragon. It's a, a comedy fantasy podcast that me and Gus do with some friends and also Gus has another podcast Gus oh I've got so many podcasts Chris uh, you can listen to uh, Animal Podcast or RT Rooster Teeth Podcast uh, if you're looking for uh, things a little more lighthearted. yeah but yeah alright bye bye bye